just cover our morning in the word in prayer before we get into it. Thank you, Lord, for drawing this group of people for this day to hear this fantastic truth that you have conquered death, conquered the grave. And Lord, that that has so many implications for us today who deal with death regularly, deal with the fallen condition of men and sin and bondage and depression and discouragement and cancer and illness and sickness and divorce and separation and abuse and so much, God, that, uh, that just we can, we can say we experience death in this world, but you come to bring us life and life abundantly. And so by the Spirit of God, would you just press that into our heart and open up our minds to be able to see that uh, this morning. Just give us that fresh glimpse of the resurrected Jesus that uh, that we would leave this place with the same excitement that the disciples had in the early church, knowing that you're not dead, but you're alive. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, I'm going to open up just by reading the burial accounts of Jesus. Uh, here at the church this week, we've read through the Passion Week together. Uh, Good Friday service we met and we read of the crucifixion after the betrayal of Jesus and the arrest and the trial. And so that's fresh in our mind. Uh, but as we go to the resurrection, just want to read again of the burial. In Matthew 27, 57, says, Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He's risen from the dead. So that last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Think for a moment of death, if you will. Think of grandma, grandpa. Think of that puppy or that dog that got hit by a car. Think of those calves that didn't make it through a rough winter. Think of, uh, you know, the, the child that you miscarried. Think of the husband that's passed away. Think of intimately your close encounters with death. It takes your heart somewhere, doesn't it? Because death is so permanent. Death is so permanent. And the moment you partake of it for the first time, you realize how real it is. You know, when, when the trauma is underway and the heart stops beating and the surgeon or the doctor calls it and says, time of death. 10.53 a.m., the, the emergency room quiets down and instruments are put away and uh, a sheet is placed over a face and it's done. That life is done. That life that was 30 years in the making, conception through birth, through infancy, through childhood and training and education and equipping for manhood, Equipping for womanhood and being a mom and being a, you know, a, a skilled worker, having a vocation and having fun and enjoying life and all of these things that life represents is cut short in the stop of a heartbeat and it's done. 
It's done. It is so permanent that that life is over. You've been there. I've been there. My dad died when I was 19 years old, and that wasn't my first brush with death, but probably my most intimate brush with death. As I sat at the side of my dad's bed, and we had to make the tough call after months of a battle against aggressive brain cancer and strokes that would leave him in a coma and incapacitated and no brain activity. We had to make the call as a family to remove his life support. And we stood around his bed and sang a song out of Isaiah of, I see the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple with glory. And as we sang of seeing the Lord, my dad opened his eyes for the first time in five days and gave up his spirit. 19 years old with a 15-year-old sister, and a 21-year-old sister, and we watched as our dad entered into eternity. And I'll tell you what, going back to college, it was very real how permanent death is when you want to call dad, and you, you pick up the phone, and I can't call dad. can't call him. So permanent. This, on this end of life, I will never see him again. On this end of life. But... As a 19-year-old, I had also had a privilege that not many have to go on my first trip to Israel. This was taken from my third trip to Israel. My first trip to Israel, zealous, 19-year-old, thinking I know everything, and going to the Holy Land and walking where Jesus walked and going where Jesus laid down his life and going into the empty tomb and going to the Temple Institute where they are Jewish zealots that are preparing the way for the Messiah to return uh, and praying for the re rebuilding of the temple. They've built all of the artifacts for the temple. Jesus is coming back soon. All that needs to happen is someone to bring a peace. I mean, as a young 19-year-old, I knew the eschatology that Jesus was coming back soon and everything is set in place. And so as I sat there and I said goodbye to my dad, I also had it very fresh in my mind that I'll see you soon. I'll see you soon. It, it might be three years, Dad, and it might be 50 years, but I will see you soon. You see, as permanent as death is and as good as funerals are, Ecclesiastes tell us, because it's in the house of mourning that you realize how temporary life is, and it teaches you to number your days. You would be wise to number your days. It's also there that you realize how temporary life is and how soon you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, something that's so wonderful about Easter and in studying this week, I'm not ashamed to use the word Easter. A friend of mine in the community that's not a believer, he's an atheist, and he posted something on Facebook yesterday about don't call it Easter. It's, that's a celebration of Ishtar, the Ephesian goddess of fertility and, you know, and all of this pagan stuff. And I remember, yeah, you know, there's that. We don't worship that, but that's, you know, I don't call it Easter. I call it the resurrection day. And then studying yesterday that actually just because it sounds like Ishtar doesn't mean we're, you know, it's part of that. It's actually Germanic and it's a form of Oestra, which means Passover celebration. Uh, and it comes from the German, ancient German language. And so, very exciting for us to be able to say Easter today. We're not worshiping a false god. We're celebrating with the rest of our ancient fathers in what happened on Passover as Jesus was the lamb whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins that we could be saved. A little tangent there, by the way, but that's okay, right? What's so good about Easter is that we come and we realize that Death doesn't have to be permanent. That Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose just like he said he would, and he conquered death so that Paul would say in one of the first written eyewitnesses accounts of Jesus' life after death, he writes, Oh, death, where is your sting? There's no sting anymore. Have you felt the sting of death before? When you went to that funeral, when you went to that viewing of that body, when the puppy died, 
And now you can realize that because of what Jesus has done, no matter what bad stuff happens in this world, all the way to your own death that may be painful and may be violent, that's not the end. And it doesn't have the last word. Because Jesus is risen from the dead and he has become the first one of everyone else who's going to raise from the dead, who's put their hope in him. Have you put your hope in him today? We read of the burying of Jesus because it's a very important part of the resurrection of Jesus. You bury someone because they're dead. Unless you're in the mob or the mafia, then there's other things that happen, but never been a part of that in the last 10 years. But so... <clears throat> But the burying of Jesus showed his death that seemed so permanent. Even to the disciples, Pilate marveled when Joseph came to him and said, can I have the body? He said, is he already dead yet? This is, normally it takes days for a man to die on the cross in agony and pain. Is he dead already? Hey, centurion, go and see if he's dead. And the centurion goes, sees that he appears to be dead. The other two thieves on the cross, not dead yet. And he thrusts a spear through Jesus' side. And Luke tells us that blood and water came out of his side uh, from the, the pierce in his side. Physicians tell us that that's an example of a complete collapse of the heart cavity where blood and water would come out. Literally, Jesus died on the cross of a broken heart for sinners. And he was found to be dead. And we have a man who rose to the occasion who was at one point a secret disciple named Joseph of Arimathea. He was a prominent council member of the very Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, that sent Jesus to his death, yet he did not consent to the death of Jesus. And this prominent council member who it says was secretly a disciple saw what Jesus did and could not remain a secret disciple any longer. And the prayer at Good Friday was that anyone in our community even here today that would call themselves a secret disciple member, oh, that today you would, you would see Jesus. Because you know, when you see Jesus, two things are going to happen. Either you're no longer going to be a secret disciple, or you're going to see that you're not a disciple. You can't remain in both camps and claim to be a follower of Jesus. The Lord will come upon you in such a way that you will take bold steps like Joseph of Arimathea and you will go before the ones that killed Jesus and say, give me my Lord's body. I must honor it. And it says that there was a man with him, a man named Nicodemus, a man who was also part of the Pharisee Jewish sect who was also a secret disciple in John chapter 3, who snuck out in the middle of the night to ask Jesus, teacher, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And the teacher Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you, you must be born again if you want to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus said, how am I supposed to be born again? I'm a grown man. Go back up into my mom's womb. How does this happen? And Jesus says, assuredly, I tell you, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. You must be born again. Don't marvel that I tell you, you must be born again. And we see Nicodemus. Something happened in his life where he went from being a secret disciple to joining Joseph of Arimathea, retrieving the body of Jesus and anointing it with special fragrant spices and linens and putting it in the tomb where we see the paranoid Pharisee Jews were afraid that Jesus would have a missing body and claim that he rose from the dead. He said he was going to do that. We don't want to give this guy any credence. So let's seal that tomb up real good so that nothing happens to that body. And Pilate, the governor, the representation of Caesar in Judea says, you have your guard, a squad of Roman soldiers who know it's their life if anything happens to this body. They will put 15 of them in front of this stone in a horseshoe pattern. Nothing's going to happen here. Seal that stone up. The 
best way that you know how. And they went out and did so. Hope you were up this morning when the sun came up. Because that kind of sets the scene for where we are at today. Where it was after the Sabbath, verse 1 of chapter 28. Which means it's after Saturday. The first day of the week began to dawn. Sunday morning, sunrise. Interesting that something happened to a body of Jews that caused them to observe Saturday Sabbath as the day set apart, consecrated to worship the Lord, and they moved it to Sunday where in church history, Jews who became Jews for Jesus began worshiping on a Sunday. What happened on that Sunday? The resurrection of Jesus changed the course of Judean worship as Messianic Jews would worship on the day after the Sabbath, the first day of the week as it began to dawn. Mark's gospel says it was very early in the morning that these women would come to the tomb when the sun had risen. We see that it was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary who came to see the tomb. When we read of the burial, we see that these women had observed where his body lay. As they were burying Jesus, they sat opposite the tomb The scriptures say that there was no one else buried in this area. There's one tomb. The women had been there and they had observed it. And then they came back the day after tomorrow to bring some fragrance. And Mark tells us that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices on this Easter morning so that they could anoint Jesus. 2,000 years have gone by and women are still trying to make things smell good. They were having a little sensey party there in the garden tomb. Bright and early. It's when the candles look their best. The fact that the Gospels record the first eyewitnesses of a risen Jesus were women is astounding. To the Jews... The women had no value. Their testimony was moot. They could not testify in a trial or any court. It didn't mean anything. It didn't matter how many of them there were. Uh, The Pharisees would wake up in the morning and they would pray, God, I thank you that I'm not a woman or a dog. So it's very interesting that The the Christian account of the written eyewitnesses that it was women who were the first ones to see Jesus and bring the first report, that means something. It means, as as Simon, I'm I'm going to quote him in a little bit. I'm sorry, Frank Morrison, he'll write, because we're not dealing with myth or legend or a romance novel, we don't write it however we want it to seem. And back in the day, as they were trying to prove something that Jesus had risen from the dead, they didn't twist it and doctor it up and put a cherry on top to to sweeten the taste to the hearers. They said it as it happened. Women were the first one that saw him. This speaks to the credibility of the account. As I was studying this week for the resurrection sermon, I came across a Ravi Zacharias video. And he was responding to a question from an audience member regarding feminism feminism, and if God, you know, was uh, showing favoritism to men and uh, if he does women down uh, and if that's the God of the Bible. And Ravi Zacharias answers with uh, responding to that question. He says, the greatest truth from which Christianity hangs is the resurrection. And why in heaven's name would God reveal himself to women to go and tell the message of all Easter hangs on the testimony of women? 
Why would it be womankind in which he entrusts the entire gospel? That shows that God is not a bigot. That God has created value in women equal to the value of men. That throughout church history, wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone, women have been freed to be who God has created them to be. Women have been brought out of oppression and abuse wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ is practiced and lived. That doesn't mean that there's not specific gender roles or a distinction in gender. However, the value of a woman is just as wonderfully high as the value of a man. And God shows that. By letting the first witnesses be women in this Easter story. As they would come to the tomb early when the sun is just starting to rise. We read verse 2. It seems that Matthew's gospel goes back in time just a minute to explain how the tomb came to be empty. And how the guards were frightened away as it says, Behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Now, each gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, focuses on different aspects of the resurrection. They're writing to different people for different purposes, and their cameras, if you will, are set up in different spots during this uh, event, just as if you were watching a parade and I'm down a few blocks from the parade and I noticed the, you know, I noticed the marching band and the baton twirlers and the giant Snoopy balloon, you know, but you're over there and you're noticing the little Shriners guys on the little cars and they're more on your side of the road and that's what you notice and that's what you would write about. And you would, you know, you're over here, you see a square dancer fall off the float, you know, and the medics come over and it's happened in Prineville, by the way, I've seen it. But anyways... <laughs> Different accounts of the same event. And that's what happens here. Each gospel account focusing on something else for the purpose of what they're writing for and what their audience needs to hear. In the end, again, this actually gives the Bible incredible validity so that fair inquirers, even skeptics, are able to say, you know what, there's been no collaboration here. If there was collaboration, the writers would have gotten together and been like, let's chuck out the thing about the women being the first ones to see Jesus. We said, no, that's not going to gain any traction when we're going throughout the world. And let's chuck out the part about you see one angel and I see two angels and, you know, get that out. Let's just make it sound exactly the same. And any attorney would be able to say there's been collaboration beforehand. These guys met and said, what are you going to say? No, what are you going to say? Well, we got to make it jive. When in reality, there were different perspectives here. As we write of the tomb, as we read of the tomb, there's different incredible things about the tomb. When we, write, when we speak of the tomb, we're speaking of Gordon's tomb. The tomb that you saw me in the video going down and from the cross to the grave. Gordon's tomb. Now, if we'll just leave it here for a minute. Uh, you can go to Israel and you can go to um, you know, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Anywhere, there's, there's incredible places in Israel. But there is a Catholic presence uh, that has built cathedrals in many of these places. And so if, as you go to Jerusalem, you can go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and you can see uh, the star in a cathedral where the cross was once placed. And through Constantine's mother, that was believed to have been the place where Jesus was crucified, and then uh, a tomb uh, at a distance away. And it was interesting that at the end of the 1800s, a British soldier named Gordon uh, was sitting on the top of his roof uh, having breakfast, when he looked out and he noticed that a rocky outcropping at the north of the city, outside of the gate, uh, seemed to have an appearance of a skull. And you can kind of see on the right there that, you know, some eyes and a nose bone and maybe jaws, you know, as, you, as you're looking there. Use your imagination, if you will. 
And he said, you know that, as he's reading, uh, as a Christian, he's reading the account, he says, that looks a lot like a skull. And he began to investigate. He actually was an archaeologist. And as he was investigating, he found that there was a tomb about a football's throw away from the skull. And the more evidence that was presented, and the more archaeologists that came by, it seemed that this was actually uh, a legitimate bona fide place uh, that could have been the crucifixion site as well as the burial site. Uh, Two engineers from the University of Georgia Tech went to the Holy Land and they observed Gordon's tomb uh, and they concluded that uh, as secular scholars, not Christians, but observing the Bible, this has got to be the tomb spoken of in Scripture. As you flash back to the 1800s, Gordon was able to take a sample from the dust inside the tomb and he sent it off to their labs in uh, what they had there in London and they found that there'd been no bodily decomposition in that tomb ever. And so what we have is an empty tomb. An empty tomb that does not have a stone anywhere in the nearby vicinity. These two engineers from Georgia Tech calculated by looking at the trough, and as we move on to the next uh, image, you can see that there is a trough where a stone would be rolled down in front of the door, and they concluded that this stone had to have been massive and weighed about two uh, to two and a half tons, uh, anywhere from 3,000 to 4,000 pounds And what's interesting about that is our account in Matthew here says that someone had come and rolled back the stone from the door. Mark's gospel tells us that the women were wondering, how are we going to get the stone rolled away? And as they showed up, the stone had been rolled away. And I love the different accounts of this because in our account today in Matthew, you see the stone is rolled away and an angel is sitting on it. I was awake at about 3 a.m. this morning. I had a sick child, and I'm laying in bed trying to go to sleep, and I just couldn't get this image out of my mind of what it might have been like to be going down. It's cold. It's springtime, you know. It's just got that cold, dark, you know, and you got burial spices. You're going to a tomb. There's a dead guy in it, you know. He was executed. You know, it's like, okay, we're going down there. There's been a giant earthquake. The stone is rolled away. And there's an angel sitting on it. Have you ever had that happen? (laughs) Some weird stuff happened in your college days, in your dorm room, I know. But, you know, this, this is incredible. Stone rolled away. Now, it's interesting. As you compare the Gospels, Matthew uses the word kaiala in the Greek, which means the stone was rolled away. An angel sat on it. Mark uses an addition to the word anakaiala, and it means This stone was rolled away up a slope and at an angle. Luke, as a physician, writes apokaiolo, and it means it was rolled a distance away. And then we have John's gospel that uses a different Greek word altogether, ero, meaning something was picked up and thrown away. This 4,000-pound rock was cast away by an angel or by angels, not so that Jesus could let me out of here, but so that we disciples could go in and see he ain't in here. He isn't here. He is risen. And so have that in your mind as we go to the garden tomb together, as we go to Gordon's tomb together, there's no stone just kind of... They got a crowbar after they just beat off some Roman squad of soldiers. Get this thing out there, you know. You know, well, you know, you can kind of get your head in here and look around and we can pull the body out of it, you know, squish it out. Let's get this thing out of here so it looks like Jesus rose from the dead. There's no stone there. There's no stone anywhere in the garden. It was cast away. It was rolled away. And an angel sitting on it and his countenance was like lightning and his clothes We're as white as snow. This is a common description of angels and anyone who's been in the presence of the glory of God. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. 
We're talking of 15 to 20 Roman soldiers who'd been seasoned in military conflict and conquest. They've seen things in their day, especially in dealing with the Judeans and their battles against them. And whatever happened there on this day after the Sabbath shook them to the core and they became like dead men. Verse 5, but the angel answers and says to the women, do not be afraid. Roman soldiers, anyone who's anti-Jesus, be afraid, tremble. If you're for Jesus, don't be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. He's not here for he is risen. Today as you go to the garden tomb, there's a wooden door that's been put there and on the plaque uh, is inscribed on the door, he is not here for he is risen. Such a wonderful phrase, but he also added just as he said. Don't you remember all those times Jesus said he wouldn't be here on the third day? Why are you here? Oh, you have little faith. Oh, you have unbelief. Well, come on in and look. What did the woman see? Wrappings of glue and fragrant aloes and myrrhs and spices. As we read in the account, some 100 pounds of fragrant spices. I mean, you got a wheelbarrow and like a cart thing. And you bring, I mean, you know, it's a dry rub. But it says that they took strips of linen, and these strips of linen, you know, the custom is that about a foot wide of these strips from the ankle to the shoulders, uh, that they would dip in this aloe, and it was kind of a gooey, gummy, fragrant um, paper mache, if you will. And all over the body, they build this cast of fragrant spices and aloes, a hundred pounds of it, all up to the armpits and over the shoulders, uh, and it would dry and harden and kind of conceal the aroma as people would be coming in to uh, pay tribute and to remember and to mourn. And, uh, and then they would place a hanky over the face. And so when you would come into the tomb, what would you see? You would see the grave clothes that are like a, a hardened cocoon, a cast, and there's no one in them. And John's gospel says, and you see the hanky and it's folded up, put nicely there in its place at the, you know, Jesus makes his bed. Kids, learn your lesson. A little hanky folded up there over the face. Shroud of Turin. Okay, whatever. There it was. Okay, so they come in. They look to the right, and what did they see? No Jesus. But a bodily resurrection that was so glorious, there was no body there, but it was able to go through the grave clothes and into the power of an eternal life. What a sight it must have been to peek into the tomb as we did on video today and see the cocoon with no body. So come and see, the angel says. But then he says in verse 7, now go quickly and tell. Tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Come and see. Now go and tell. The angel actually says in Mark's gospel, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Why would he say and Peter? You see, all of the disciples were backslidden and fallen away from Jesus. The shepherd had been struck and the sheep had fled away, the prophet says. They all ran away out of fear, but Peter's backsliding went a step deeper when Jesus had told him beforehand, all of you are going to be made to deny me tonight. And Peter says, not me, I will never die. Even, after, even if, I to, if I have to die, I will not deny you. Take it to the bank, Jesus. Listen here, buddy. Before the rooster crows three times, you're going to have denied me three times. We see that after Jesus' arrest, the disciples fled away, but Peter made his way over to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, in the courtyard where he was near the first trial of the Jews against Jesus. And there in the courtyard, there was a fire going and people were warming themselves. 
And as they're warming themselves, and Peter's no doubt looking, where did Jesus go? Which way did Jesus go? A little girl says, I knew who you are. You were with him. <laughs> no, I wasn't. I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. Just, okay. And then another says, another girl says, I'll spare you the Mary Poppins accent, but she says, yeah, you were. Your speech betrays you that you're a Galilean. And then he curses and he says, swear, he's swearing, he's not cursing, he's swearing. And he's saying, I swear I don't know this guy. I swear I don't know him. And then someone else says, yeah, you are. Yeah, you know him. I've seen you with him. And this is when he doesn't curse, as you know, a four-letter word, but he brings a curse upon himself. If I know Jesus, then let me be damned. I don't know him. And I think it's John's gospel that says that that last moment, the rooster crows and Peter looks up and looks over and Jesus had just been let out from his first trial and they made eye contact. And Peter wept bitterly and convulsively. He had denied Christ. He'd been backsliding. And perhaps in that glance at Jesus, there'd been some misunderstanding of Jesus' heart towards Peter. But the angel wants it to be known, you go tell the disciples and tell Peter. You make sure that Peter is there in Galilee when Jesus shows up. Because Jesus has a heart for the backslidden. And maybe you come here today backslidden, cursing God, cursing Jesus with your life. The way you're living is a curse on Jesus. You've denied Jesus. You're backslidden. Your life of debauchery and filth and rebellion against God, your hard-heartedness toward him, you're in the same boat as Peter. And if you know Peter, you realize you're in a worse boat than Peter. But the same word would be for you today on this Resurrection Sunday. Go tell, insert your name, go tell Rory. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. You see, when they would go to Galilee, Galilee where they saw Jesus was a time of second chance. Our God is a God of second chances. And today is a day where there is a second chance for you. If you are backslidden, the death of Jesus alone would have been a pretty dark, sorrowful time for the backslidden man or woman. But the resurrection of Jesus with your name tagged along the back of an invitation to come see him, there's hope and life for you this morning. Dr. Frank Morrison, he was a lawyer from Britain who'd been brought up at well-known skeptics and atheists like Thomas Arnold and Thomas Huxley, Matthew Arnold. He hated Christians and the myth of the resurrection. And he'd set out to prove once and for all that the resurrection of Jesus was a myth. He wanted to get down to evidence and show that Christians are dead wrong. And as he went and he began to investigate, he ended up finding that all of the evidence combined together shows that not only is Jesus really risen from the dead, but all of this evidence makes the resurrection of Jesus the best proved fact in all of history. And as you study, you see that many skeptics who go out to disprove Jesus in the resurrection end up finding that it's true. Frank Morrison ended up writing a book. The book was supposed to be about how Christians are dead wrong. And he ended up writing a book called Who Moved the Stone? that showed that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead, appeared to the disciples, and sent them out to preach the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He writes in his book, Who Moved the Stone? I'm reading it right now. He says, I don't know how the reader feels about the matter of people's denial, Peter's denial, 
But personally, I am sure of the essential historicity of the pathetic little story of Peter's fall and repentance that of almost anything else in the Gospels. It is one of those stories that is intelligible enough as a transcript from real life, but that would be quite inexplicable regarding as fiction. What possible explanation can we offer of a story so damning and derogatory to the reputation of one of the leading apostles getting into the first Christian account of the passion, save that it was an ineffaceable memory of an actual event? And so as a lawyer went out and was looking at all of the evidence that there was really a Peter who really knew Jesus and really denied Jesus, but really was brought back to know Jesus and follow Jesus once again. That was one of the most incredible evidences to this attorney that all of this was real and genuine. And so the angel said to the women, come and see, look at the empty tomb. But then what else did he say? Go and tell. Go and tell. Tell the disciples and tell Peter. And you guys, that is the same message that we hear from the Lord today. Come and see. Come remember. He's not dead. He's alive. Come and see. Come enjoy Easter. Come and just let it soak in and look at the pictures and read the biographies and listen to the converts who were skeptics being made believers. Come and see. Come and hear. But it doesn't end there with some little you know, warm fuzzies on the back of your neck. Easter doesn't end with the come and see. It ends with the go and tell. Go and tell. As Peter and John were told in Acts chapter 4, stop talking about Jesus or we're going to arrest you and beat you. And what did they say? We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. The witness of the apostles who in one, the beginning of a weekend were craven runaways running away from Jesus and by the end of the weekend were assured of his resurrection in such a way that they would go and lay down their lives in violent fashion preaching the resurrection. That is one of the main evidences that there was an empty tomb and Jesus was alive. Come and see Now do as the disciples and go and tell. Verse 8, so they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring the disciples' word. When Jesus tells you to do something, how quickly do you respond? They went quickly. They were running and they went with fear and great joy. They went with phobos, kind of a phobia, like, this is crazy! (laughs) And then they went with great joy, Magus Charis. Kind of a giddiness, like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know? That's how I would be. Mark tells us that they trembled and were amazed. There was a reason for them to have Magus Charis and Phobos. And there's a reason for us as well. There's a reason for us today to fear and to have great joy. Because Jesus is still alive. Verse 9, and as they went to tell the disciples, behold, Jesus met them. Kind of a fun little pit stop on the road. So they came and they held him by the feet and they worshipped him. And as they went, Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. John tells us, chapter 20, verse 3, that Peter heard this and he ran out. And the other disciples They were all going to the tomb. And and so the other disciple, John and Peter, ran together. And John, in such a funny account here of his writing, 
the other disciple, John, outran Peter. Just wanted to make sure we all know who the fastest was. And he came to the tomb first, and he stooped down and looked in. We have a picture of what John would have seen as he came and stooped down and looked in. And he sees the linen clothes lying there. It says, but he did not go in. Then as that amount of time had, had uh, gone by, it says that Peter finally came <laughs> and went into the tomb and he saw the linen clothes lying there. And the handkerchief had been around his head, not lying there. The linen clothes uh, with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. The other disciple who came to the tomb first, John says, went in also. He finally goes in. And when he did, it says he believed. My prayer for you today, and our prayer as a church, if, if this is your first time here, maybe your first time hearing this, that you would have seen the empty tomb as we've seen it on video, as we have images today, but then as we read a firsthand eyewitness action news of a man who saw and believed, that today you would see and you would believe as well. E.P. Sanders is a professor from Duke and Oxford and he's recognized as the top historical Jesus scholar. He himself calls himself a liberal, but is recognized as very reputable. And he wrote in his book in 1993, The Human Figure of Jesus, called Data Scholars Know, the chapter about Jesus says, Scholars agree that after his death, Jesus appeared to his early disciples. Exactly how he appeared, I'm not prepared to say. He's a liberal scholar. In fact, he's known as a skeptic, and yet he's a fair inquirer. He uses the same data that we're able to use, that is valid data as a skeptic. And he takes it and he looks at it and he says, you know what? Looking at the historical record and the accounts, it's sure, scholars agree, Jesus appeared to his early disciples after his death. How it happened, I don't know, but something happened. And there's a consensus among skeptical scholars that this is so. Three of the leading scholars of our day, Larry Hurtado, James D.G. Dunn, and Richard Bachman, have said coming out of the gate that Christianity would have survived from day one if the early church had a good, strong understanding of who Jesus was and claimed to be, understanding what he did and that he died, and understanding the resurrection accounts. Those three things, the church would thrive and survive. Paula Fredericks from Boston University, not a Christian, <clears throat> says, I know in their own terms that the disciples saw the raised Jesus. That's what they say. And then all the historical evidence we have afterwards attests to their conviction that that is what they saw. I'm not saying they really did see the raised Jesus. I don't know what they saw, but I know that as a historian, I have to be fair. They must have seen something. They saw something that changed them from running away from the action to running for the action of Jesus. They saw something. And then as you get into more evidence and more understanding, guys who were skeptics, who did their research, they understand, like Dr. Henry Morris, that they didn't see hallucinations or visions brought on by hysteria or drugs. 
It wouldn't have been possible because people were seeing him over here and over there. One of them saw him, but then 500 people saw him at one time. These type of visions and hallucinations don't happen. When you get this many people seeing Jesus at one time or as individuals on a hilltop or on a lake or by a lake, he's cooking breakfast for you. You've got to understand these are not visions or hallucinations. They must have seen something. And that something moved them to go have their families martyred, the loss of all of their possessions, and ultimately their own death after beatings and scourgings and imprisonment and torture to the point of violent, brutal deaths, whether by spear, being thrown off of a temple, being sawn in half, being crucified upside down on an X-shaped cross, being crucified in the normal fashion, being uh, thrust through with a sword, whatever it might have been, these men knew that they had seen Jesus, and they would not deny it. Verse 11, and we're just going to close by reading this account. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. And when they assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. And so you have the beginning of the cover-up of the resurrection of Jesus. Trying to you know, accuse the disciples of covering something up from the Roman government is like trying to cover something up from the FBI today. Things that had been seen by the public. See, things that have been seen by eyewitnesses, cowards, hiding away in their houses, all of a sudden becoming brave and strong and attempting great things for God. Stones that were cast away. Bold lives of disciples. It's been said that liars make lousy martyrs. Tell, tell them the disciples stole them away. And that fable is still used to this day. The story goes on then. The 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew's gospel is kind of just short and quick and to the point. The other gospels have Great other stories of Jesus appearing in Jerusalem and in houses and by the lake shore and cooking breakfast for the guys and all of this cool stuff. And Matthews is pretty quick that, hey, go to Galilee. He meets them in Galilee and he commissions them on the hill in Galilee in Matthew's account. <clears throat> the risen Jesus appearing before his disciples starts out by telling them, hey, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I have got jurisdiction here and there and everywhere. I have been vindicated by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. I told the Jews, you seek a sign. Here is your sign that I am who I said that I am. I will die and I will rise again on the third day. And I have died and I have risen again on the third day. I have been vindicated. I have shown to be true. The cross was my payment for your sins. The resurrection was the receipt that the payment was good. I have a homecoming where I'm going to ascend into heaven and sit down at the right hand of God. I have got authority. And because I have authority as the boss... 
I am now sending all of you who've seen me to go out. You've come and seen, and now you must go. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go and make disciples, make learners and followers of me. People who say they want to follow me, you baptize them as an outward sign of an inward change in their heart. That the old man has died, been crucified with Christ, but there's a new man who's alive in power, filled with the same spirit that rose me from the dead. You teach those disciples who've been baptized to follow everything that I've commanded. How wonderful, as a missionary church, that our resurrection account, lickety-split, goes right into the Great Commission. He's alive, he appears, he says, come and see, and now he says, go and tell. Go and tell. On our Good Friday service, and we can have the worship team come on up, in our Good Friday service, Reading the story of the cross. We grieved knowing that 2.83 billion people in this world have never heard the name of Jesus. 2.83 billion people in this world that have no access and there's no hope right now for them to have one of these in their hands. That they could open it up on a weekend in March or April and read of Jesus' great love for them and that he laid down his life for them. And read of God's wrath being poured out against sin and sinners, but upon the body of Jesus Christ. They have yet to read of the mercy of God to sinners because of Jesus. And 2.83 billion people in this world have never heard of the resurrection of Jesus. That he has conquered death. Oh, they know death. They see death every day on a grand scale. And they burn and bury their loved ones, hoping that they did more good in their life than bad. That hopefully maybe they can get that next step up in the afterlife. Maybe, maybe next time I'll be something better in a better cast. I'll be a, a better created thing. Hopefully I did more good than bad. And they don't, they don't know that Jesus did more good than bad. He did no bad, but he suffered the death of a sinner so that anyone who heard of him and believed on what he's done would not perish but have everlasting life. 2.83 billion people have never heard of the cross and have never been able to celebrate as we do that there's an empty grave. And anyone who has hope in him, there will be empty graves for them as well. There's a commission for us today. Not just to come and see, but to go and tell. We're all called to it. If it's Prineville, we go and tell this week. If it's to the ends of the earth, we go and we tell. And as we close, it's a special day. Because we're also told in the commission that anyone who names the name of Christ and wants to follow Jesus is to be baptized. In Mark's commission, it says, go and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. I ask you today, as you see Jesus, the empty tomb, that he is risen. That there's evidence for that. Do you believe? Jesus said to Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he will live.
Do you believe this? And I think it was Martha, rather. She said, I believe that you are the Son of God. Do you believe today? Have you been baptized if you believe? And maybe today is the day that you believe. Maybe today is the day that you, like John, you go, you see the empty grave, you see the clothes, you see that he's not in those clothes, you see that he is risen, and you believe. Today, we have a special day because we've we've got water to do a baptism. That doesn't happen very often. And if it does, it is ice cold Ochico Creek water. Today, we have water for anyone here who would name the name of Christ and believe on him you can be baptized as a disciple. And many of you, as was the story of me, you've been naming the name of Christ for quite some time. But you've never had a New Testament baptism as a disciple of Jesus, as a follower of Jesus. You're trying to do this commission thing of, I believe, I'm a follower of Jesus, I want to go and preach the gospel in all the world, but you know that whole thing about go and get in the water and get yourself all wet? Like, that's weird. Don't do it. I know better than God. I'm not going to do it. You're, you're going about the commission, starting out of the gate with disobedience in your heart. And as we hear of the resurrected Jesus commissioning us, not only to come and see, but to go and tell Today is the day for you disciples to start it out with trusting God in one of the most little things he calls us to. Jesus himself was baptized. Well, that's weird. That doesn't make sense. Why would he do that? That's what John the Baptist thought. You don't need to be baptized. You should be baptizing me. And he says, hey, it is fitting for one to fulfill all righteousness. We're not saved by being baptized, but we are baptized because we are saved. And maybe today is the first day, right now, while the preaching's been happening, you've believed in Jesus and you've trusted in Jesus. And today is the call for you to start out right out of the gate, living a life of Jesus, entrusting in obedience to him like a little kid who's just led by the hand by their parents. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna tell you where we're supposed to go. Okay, I know it seems weird. We're gonna cross this black tarmac asphalt thing where cars have giant metal engines going back and forth. Okay, trust me, here we go, here we go. And you as a little Christian child, okay, okay, here we go. Here's some water, okay? I want you to tell the world that the old you is dead and buried. <laughs> but you don't stay dead and buried. Just as Jesus was dead and buried, he rose to new life and you too will rise to new life. And you need to tell the other Christians around you that that's you. Okay, okay, here we go. You trust me? Do you trust me? In Acts chapter eight, we have an Ethiopian eunuch riding in a chariot. And Philip comes and hops on the rails of the chariot. And he sees that the eunuch is reading Isaiah 53 about Jesus being slaughtered. It's a prophecy. And after Philip shows that that is Jesus who's been led like a lamb to the slaughter, this eunuch appears to have some belief and faith in Jesus. And he says, hey, can I get baptized? And Philip says, hey, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And the eunuch says, I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Is that you today? It's a wonderful day. It's a wonderful morning. It's Easter. Man, the sun comes up with a different glory on Easter morning, doesn't it? There is something special about just a concentrated day of the resurrection. What was it like? Oh, wow. But now that you've come and seen, are you going to go? in obedience. We're going to close with worship. We're going to bring the children on in. And if you have a child during these last times, you can, uh, last worship songs, you can go and check your child out and bring them on in because we want the children to be a part of discipleship here. We want them to be a part of baptism. Uh, You know, maybe your child's old enough and understands the gospel and 
And today is the day that they are to be baptized. And we'll just take a minute with an elder and describe baptism with them up here on the side. And maybe here today, you're, you're here, and we would say like Philip, here is water, what hinders you from being baptized? Well, I've got my Easter best on. Well, my mom is not here, and she always wanted to watch me get baptized. You don't see that in the Bible. You see, those who believe and are baptized will be saved, and those who do not believe will be condemned. So as we move to worship and closing out this morning, there's a call to come down to the waters of baptism where the waters provide a sign of repentance to the world. We can just go ahead and just set our things aside and just move towards hearing from the Lord and just prayer and letting him speak to our hearts and The waters here are a symbol of a grave. And just as Easter morning began with a grave, there was a burial. And there's a resurrection. And anyone who's come here today, you want to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. You want to be a follower of him. You want to be taught the things of Jesus. And you want to be part of the going and telling. You want to be part of this Christian life. Come to the waters. Where by you being placed in them and buried in them and rising again, you're showing this church, hey, everyone, you need to know that the old me is dead because of what Jesus has done on the cross. But there's a new me. I've been born again like Nicodemus. And the life that I now live, I don't live for myself, but I live by faith in the Son of God, Jesus, who died and rose again and loves me and gave himself for me. During this song, the waters of baptism are open. We have towels for you. You can come forward and we'll worship the Lord in our